Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning journalist, best known for his explainers that inform the public on exactly what they need to know, when they need to know it. Born and raised in Cornwall, he went on to live all across the world, from South Africa to the Bahamas to Trinidad and Tobago, lapping up a wealth of experience along the way. After a decades-long career at the BBC, still current, he also launched the 5050 Project. Its aim is to increase the representation of women in media. He's now released his first book, The Art of Explanation, How to Communicate with Clarity and Confidence. Ross Atkins, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hi, Georgina. Thanks for having me. The first thing I'm going to ask you to explain, <laughs> given that that is your raison d'etre, is your name, because it's only got one S, and that would be Ros? Yeah, so my name's Roslyn, R-O-S-L-Y-N. I'm from Cornwall, and Roslyn's a Celtic name. You've probably heard of the Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. It's sometimes spelt with two S's, more commonly spelt with two S's, but sometimes spelt with one, but it's always pronounced, or most often pronounced, as if it has a Z. And so I'm called Roslyn. I think my parents maybe used it a little bit in the first few months of my life or maybe the first couple of years of my life. But I can't remember ever having been called Roslyn. I've been called Ros for as long as I can remember. And so that's why it sounds like it sounds and it only has one S. Tell us more about growing up in Cornwall. Well, my mum and dad moved into the house they still live in, in West Cornwall, when I was, I think, one or two. So all my memories of my childhood are in are in one house, and it's still the, the house which I go back to often to stay with mum and dad, with my wife, Sarah, and our kids. And, you know, I loved it, really. You live in a small village surrounded by fields. You kind of roam around in a way that I used to love, particularly in the summertime. You'd go off and try and find blackberries or just go on an adventure. Or there's a, there was a stream that runs down the bottom of mum and dad's garden. You'd see how long you could walk down the stream one way or the other way. So it was quite an adventurous childhood. And my dad, well, he was a fisherman for a time in the 70s. And then when he became a teacher, he very much kept up his interest in fishing. So he's had a fishing boat for most of my, not all of my childhood, but most of my childhood. And so we'd spend a lot of time out on the water and that would be good fun too. So I'm very, very passionate about being from Cornwall. I still go back an awful lot and remain, you know, incredibly fond of it and proud of it being the place that I'm that I'm from. And, and I love growing up there. Music seems to have been a big part of your childhood yeah. and indeed more as we get into your teenagehood. But I was particularly interested in you learning to play the piano because a lot of the lessons you learned from there, you then use when talking about communicating in your book. Yeah. So I learned piano from, I think, probably about eight or nine. I think initially I learned, I got lessons from a really lovely man called Jim, who was a friend of mum and dad, still is a friend of mum and dad's. And then I think as I changed school and that became a bit inconvenient to get to see Jim, I flipped to a different teacher who I was with throughout my secondary school. And I think the thing that I learnt, and I you know, don't want to over, <laughs> you know, overstate this because I learnt it the hard way, was that, was that if you want to enjoy the act of performance and the act of composing and the act of being in groups and the act of just generally creating music, you're going to have to put in the, the time. And so I've got two sisters, both of them younger than me, and we were all learning the piano. So we all used to have a half hour slot before school. And so there's three of you, that's an hour and a half, right? And we were all out the door by eight. So for quite a while in my teens at 6.30, I would sit down at the piano and I would practice from 6.30 to 7, often when it was dark outside and 
Cornwall being Cornwall often drizzling as well. And needless to say, I wasn't always overly enthused at that prospect. But I did, I think, make the connection between, especially in the sick form and when I was a little bit further into my teens, between... I like the experience of doing gigs. I like the experience of being in the school jazz band. I like the experience of learning classical pieces of music as well and playing them sometimes. And if I'm going to have all those things which I like doing, I am going to have to sit down each day at 6.30 and do my scales and, and put in the time. Mm. And of course, we come back to this in your book because you talk a lot about how practice obviously right. makes perfect, to use the cliche, but also about things like phrasing and rhythm and all of that, of course, inherent in music. Yes, and I think that in the end, music is is there. It's not just for the notes to be written on the page and for you to translate that mechanically into the sound being created. Music is about performance. It's about feeling. It's about expression. And for me, when we're expressing ourselves either when we're speaking or when we're writing, when we're using words, it's the same thing. It's not just, I think I write in the first few pages of the book that explanation for me is working out exactly what you want to say, distilling the information to do that, but then crucially also calibrating how you pass that information on. And music has been very, very useful to me in understanding that just having the the raw materials, even if they really are the things that people want, isn't enough. You need to think about how are you going to pass it on and who are you passing it on to and how long have you got to pass it on and so on. And for me, the magic of music, and I don't want to overstate this because I was there were definitely limits to my, my abilities as a pianist and I came right up against them, definitely as, I, as the pieces got harder to play. But what I did understand was that there was a lovely moment sometimes where you'd kind of got your fingers around the, the mechanics of playing the notes and then you started to think, well, how do I actually want this to sound? And I always used to love that moment if I could get to it. I couldn't always. And it's a similar feeling when I'm speaking, whether on radio or TV or whether it's giving a talk or whatever it might be, or even writing a book, though that was a different experience, of that shift from first having pulled the information together and then working out how can I pass this on in a way that really clicks. And mm. it, of course, I never assume it will click. But when it does, that's a that's a really exciting feeling. And there's a definite connection between how I think about doing that when I was playing the piano and later doing DJing as well and how I do it within a journalistic context or in any communication context. Mm. Well, the DJing, of course, because what you're trying to do there is decide, firstly, what tracks, but then you're reading your audience. What order do you present those right. tracks in? What is the room telling you? Yes, it's, exactly, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's in some ways exactly the same thing. And I think I give an example of a festival I DJed at just before our eldest daughter was born, where... On one level, it went well, everyone seemed happy, but my memory of it was partly that it was good fun, but also that I wasn't really sure what this event was and who was at it and what I should be playing. And I didn't feel that the tunes in isolation, I've still got the CD that I that I used to DJ from, the tunes in isolation were all big tunes. I've got no problem with the tunes I chose that day. Mm. For how I put them together, I felt gave away slightly the fact that I wasn't really sure what I was trying to say. And... There's a more positive side to that, as I can think of examples when I've been DJing, when I really have known the kind of music I wanted to stitch together and why I was doing that for that particular crowd. So all these different examples, whether it's DJing or playing jazz on the piano or putting together a news story, they're really all just different versions of me making the case for stopping and thinking about 
what is it I want to say, who is it I'm saying it to, what's the circumstance in which I'm saying it, and what reaction and response am I hoping from the people mm. that I'm giving it to. The process is much the same, it's just obviously these are quite different circumstances. And of course that was something you honed too when you were studying history in Cambridge. You then went on to South Africa. Tell yeah. us about that experience. Well, it was, you know, I look back on it as one of the most exhilarating years of my of my life. I was just out of university. My then girlfriend was from South Africa and she moved to Johannesburg after we graduated. And for a time I stayed in the UK. And then about six months later, we talked and we made the decision that I would that I'd move to Johannesburg. And I was just I just absolutely loved it. I had studied some South African history at university. I was very interested in South African music, not least because of a, a couple of cassettes my dad had when I was a teenager, which he used to listen to, and then I made copies of and started to take an interest in that. I was consumed with all aspects of the news from being a teenager, not just South Africa, but South Africa was part of that because, of course, I can remember watching Nelson Mandela being released and all the other huge moments in South Africa's history. So the chance to go and live there and learn more about it and and be there was, was not one that I needed to think about very much. It was just hugely, hugely exciting and it lived up to its billing. I just loved, I'd still do love Johannesburg. I've completely fell in love with it as a city and the country itself I was fascinated by and it was a real thrill to live there. Mm, you fell out of love with the girl but in love with journalism. Well that's another story. <laughs> I think I was I was in love with journalism before I went to South. I mean I, I, I've got quite a clear memory in my mind of being, I guess I would have been 11 or 12 or something like that in an early, early careers meeting at secondary school and the teachers asking us all, what would you like to be? And I can remember writing down journalist and I used to routinely watch the six o'clock news every evening after we'd watched the kids programs a little bit earlier. And I think Neighbours came on at 5.30 for quite a lot of my teens. So you'd watch Neighbours and then you'd watch the six o'clock news. So I was, I was right there with journalism. The thing I hadn't worked out was how on earth to be a journalist. And I look back on it now and think, why did I not try and take more practical steps to make it happen. I took a slightly meandering route into journalism, mainly because I had no real handle on how to get there. But my interest in the news was constant from my teens all the way through university. And a lot of my routines when I was living in South Africa, for example, revolved around the news. I used to have particular shows on the radio I used to like listening to. I'd always buy a newspaper every morning and devour it front to back. I would buy the Sunday Independent at the weekend. I just I was Mail on Mail and Guardian, which you'll know very well. On a Friday was a big moment. That was for me that was very interesting and exciting that South Africa had a weekly that came out on a Friday. That's quite unusual. Yeah. And it was part of everyone's routine that the Mail and Guardians come out. What are they gonna have to say? So Journalism, I was, it was all I ever really thought I wanted to do. And when I wasn't doing it, when I came out of university initially and wasn't doing it, and it hurt a bit because I really, that was what I wanted. And so I never really lost sight of, I never really lost sight of that goal. It just took me a little while to get there. Mm. Well, of course, the Independent on Sunday in South Africa was the first place that really gave you a journalistic break. And you used that to leverage your way in, or at least you hoped you would, when you got back to the UK. And really, this is one of the genesis stories of this book. Yes, yeah, so this was... so. So I worked for an NGO, a non-governmental organisation in South Africa called the Centre for Policy Studies. And sometimes researchers from NGOs in South Africa would write 
opinion pieces or analysis pieces in the paper. And a few months after I'd started that job, the Sunday Independent had run a piece by me, an op-ed piece by me. And the editor of the Sunday Independent was a guy called John Battersby, who was a big name in South African journalism. And a few months later, I thought, well, I love being a researcher for the Centre for Policy Studies. But as I've just been saying, journalism was really the thing that I desperately wanted to do. So I rang up John Battersby's office and said, is there any chance that I could come and volunteer at the weekends? I have a day job, so I can't come in the week. But could I come some time to help you make the paper at the weekend? And he really kindly said yes. And so for a stretch on Friday nights after my day job and then through Saturday into Saturday evening, I would go into the offices of the Sunday Independent and help with anything and everything that they would throw my way. And I loved it, just being around it and learning and I was soaking it all up. And when I came to move back to the UK, I said to John, is there any chance you could write me a reference? And he very kindly gave me this reference. And I moved back to the UK and a couple of months later, I sent it off to the independent papers in the UK, which were owned by the same company as the titles in, the, in South Africa. And I got invited in and it wasn't a surprise because John had written, John Bansby had written me a very nice reference. So I thought, OK, this is, I've got a good chance of being asked in. And sure enough, I was. And I just completely blew it. I didn't. I just had no idea what I was going to say when I went into the room. I just knew I desperately wanted it. But that and that alone is not going to get you the gig. And it really, really hurt. Like I can remember being in the room, knowing I was tanking. I can remember the feeling of coming out of it, knowing I hadn't got it. I had no expectation they were going to phone me up and go come in. And sure enough, they, they didn't. And And I thought after that, well, hold on. This is a job you really want. You've been given fantastic support by a senior editor in South Africa. You've been given a reference that really opened a door not many people would have the chance to have opened. And yet still you haven't translated it. That seemed to me required some reflection on on how I was going about it. And my conclusion was that the same way that when I was approaching history essays, I would first think about what am I trying to do? What information do I need? How can I distill the information? How can I organise the information? How can I link the information together? Maybe I could use a similar approach in how I sell myself in situations like interviews or conversations. And I started experimenting with it and it helped an awful lot. And of course, you eventually got a slot on Radio 5 Live. What I really love about you is the way that you seem to always end up in the institutions that you've been watching or, <laughs> or listening to all of your life. You have a very definite plan and then you do it, which well, is fabulous. Well, I'm sure there are lots of examples where I've had a plan that hasn't, hasn't quite happened. But certainly in the case of 5 Live, 5 Live reshaped how I felt about broadcast journalism. I probably wouldn't have been able to put it in those words as it was happening, but I'd never heard radio like Five Live before and it talked directly to me and I started becoming a very, very heavy consumer. <laughs> Nicky Campbell's original show in the mornings and then this programme up all night which was from one till five on Five Live. And I became completely obsessed with Up All Night. I absolutely loved the way it took me to all these different parts of the world I didn't know, opened up all these different subjects, some serious, some not, that I wouldn't know about. And when I finally got a gig at Five Live many moons later. I initially started actually on Simon Mayo's programme on Five Live, but after a few months, they moved me on to Up All Night. And a few months after that, they started to trust me to 
output editor to be in charge of the program as it was broadcasting. And a few months after that, to cut a reasonably long story short, they started using me as a cover presenter on it. And those were really, you know, that was a special. I remember sitting in the chair of Up All Night the first time I presented it with the music, which I knew inside out, playing below me, thinking, goodness, how did this happen? Yeah, that was a, there have been some nice moments like that. But I mean, even with that, you were in the studio on your day off, you were rehearsing exactly how you were going to do it. You know, people always say to, to presenters, oh, you make it look so easy, or at least to good ones. But it, it is about just putting in the hours, knowing what you're going to say. Just to that point, I mean, I, I bumped, there's a, a guy who used to work for the BBC called Ed Williams, who's now very senior at Edelman, and I gave him a proof of the book and he said, he kind of held it up and he kind of waved it and he went, this is the case for preparation, isn't it? And I thought, well, that's a great phrase. I'm going to borrow that because Ed is quite right. It is the case for preparation. And, you know, just to kind of emphasise that I do try and practice what I preach. Here we are sitting in your studios, but I made sure I was here 20 minutes beforehand and sat outside and went through some of the things that I wanted to make sure I was clear on and some of the things I thought, maybe I'm not as clear on this as I could be and see if I could address it. And so just because I've done lots of broadcasting and I'm a bit older and greyer than I used to be, I still take preparation seriously because for me it's the single biggest thing that we can do to give ourselves the best chance of communicating well. And I think one of the the, the mistakes we can make is to think, well, if we don't have 20 minutes, there's no point doing anything. And the point I would always emphasise is sometimes even 30 seconds preparation can go a long way. Sometimes I'll bump into someone at work who's really important with reference to what I'm something I'm trying to get going. And they'll go, actually, I've got five minutes now. Do you want to come in? And they'll say, I'm just going to nip to the loo or get a coffee. I'll be there in a second. And in that 30 seconds, I'll get a piece of paper out and go, okay, what are we going to be talking about here? What are the things I really want to get across? What do they want to know from me? What would I like to know from them? And even in 30, 60 seconds, that preparation can make quite a big difference. Mm. And of course, you expand on this whole system in your book, which we'll get to in just one moment. I just first of all want to ask you about outside source, because basically what you have done, as far as I can see, is you've invented a new type of journalism. As technology have evolved, you have found a way to harness the way we report stories, embracing all of that, really in direct response to people's concentration levels levels and the way that smartphones are challenging traditional television media. Well, that's very kind. I certainly thought that outside source was an effort to respond to how we were consuming information. I felt like the variety of content sources available to us through our phones, through the internet, was such that I wanted to see if I could create a TV format that offered a variety that was as rich. And in order to do that, we needed to create technology which allowed the brilliant producers who I've worked with over the years to translate the raw materials of all the content that's flowing through the BBC newsroom and turn that into television because the technology that we had, while very good for making other types of television, didn't allow us to do that. I was also keen on seeing if you could take the approach of, you know, collation has become a really important aspect of journalism. Live pages are still hugely important to the BBC and lots of other news organisations. And back in 2009, 2010, when I was first starting to think about what became Outside Source, I was really interested in, well, how do you collate information in a way that's efficient and clear and helpful, but on the TV? And TV is technologically 
complex, much more complex than radio. And so we needed to come up with a, a different approach of storytelling and a different technological approach to allow us to respond to that. So really outside source, I always say, was my effort to create a TV version of a live page, if you like, mm -hmm. a TV version where instead of a live page editor, you've got a presenter and it's the presenter's job to weave all these different elements together in a way that's coherent. That was the, that was the plan anyway. And it's why... You know, we always tried to emphasize with Outside Source and with our explainer videos, they've been a journalistic enterprise, but they're a technological enterprise as well with our incredible programmers and computer scientists and designers and directors and a whole array of amazing colleagues, as well as the brilliant journalists I'm working with. We wouldn't be able to do it. Mm. But of course, the main thing about all of your broadcasting is that you managed to communicate with clarity and confidence, which is the well, sub so. subtitle of your book. And so this is a wonderful explainer, I suppose, of your method, of how you do this. It's beautifully shot through with, with your own experience and with examples from other areas in the media and indeed in, in real life. This is not just a book about communicating. If you're a journalist, it's about asking for a pay raise or, or going to a meeting or addressing the parent-teacher conference. I mean, it, it is applicable to any situation that we find ourselves in. And I just wondered if you could very briefly outline for us, and I'm deliberately leaving this vague because people need to buy the book and read them for themselves but it all hinges on seven steps it hinges on seven steps and the reason i wanted to call these steps is that sometimes with explanation whether you're starting an essay or a news story or you're preparing for an interview or you've got a big speech to give or you've got a book to write certainly i applied it in that case it can feel a bit overwhelming. It can feel a bit like, where on earth do I start? And one of the things that I've learned is that rather than worrying about, oh, how am I going to get to that end point? I know if I follow these seven steps through, I'm very likely to get to a place that feels good. And so the seven steps are, first is the setup, which is essentially asking yourself, what am I doing here? What am I trying to say? Who am I saying it to? How many people am I addressing? Who are they? What do they know? Any details that you've got about what you're trying to achieve, stopping and thinking about that is really useful and it can guide all your further decisions. So step one is the setup. Step two is that you need to find the information that will support you delivering on those goals. So the first step is setting out your purpose. The second step is thinking about, well, I need to find that information. The second is distilling the information, because one of the things that trips us all up is often we'll have a kernel of what we want to say, but it's surrounded by other information that risks getting in the way of the main event. And one of the things that I find very useful is distilling information right down before I try and use it. So I get rid of all the extraneous detail around the crucial stuff before I start constructing explanations. So step one, set up. Step two, find the information. Step three, distill the information. Step four is organize it. So you've got all these nuggets of information. Well, now, and this is one of the magical things about it, the process of distilling the information and handling it means you start understanding it better. And step four would be, okay, well, how am I going to how am I going to organise this information? What are the main points that I'm trying to get across and which bits of information are going to help me do that? Step five 
Well, that would be linking the information. So that means, okay, I've, I've organized it. I've got these nuggets of information, but how do I actually want to talk from one of these things to another? And there are lots of techniques in the book about how you can do that effectively. And then step six and step seven are also crucial. Step six is what I call Titan. And I, this is my favorite bit of it. I sound probably a little bit <laughs> nerdy saying so, but like you wouldn't believe, I may, I'm sure you would, but like the, the thing that I've found revelatory as I've got better at explanation is just how much stuff we put into what we communicate that we don't need mm. to be there. And if you can become skilled at spotting what you don't need and taking it out, the impact it can have on the clarity with which you communicate is is revelatory. Mm. So step six is Titan, which is essentially go through it and get rid of all the stuff you don't need. And then step seven is rehearse. So my experience of communicating is if at the first time you're trying to do it is when it really matters, you're taking a chance. Yeah. You're really taking a big chance. It might come out brilliantly in my experience. I'm, I'm often better the second, third, fourth, fifth time. So rehearsing for me is a really important aspect of that as well. And if you do those seven things all along, I'm pretty confident that you're going to get to a point where you either have something that's written or something that you're going to speak that will be very clear and that will be attuned to what you set out to do, which mm. is you know, who am I addressing? What am I trying to tell them? What would I like to hear from them in return? What actions am I hoping to prompt? All of these things. And I think if you can get that purpose set at the beginning and then follow the steps through, you get this nice moment at the end, hopefully, where something that seemed overwhelming has, has to some degree been tamed. And I mean, it's it's not just about speaking or, as you say, as writing. It's like how to craft a perfect email. Right. I mean, there's so much information in there that I think is helpful to so many well, people. Well, that's very kind. I mean, I think the, the, the thing that I've, I hope the book gets across, and this is really something that I had a kind of penny drop moment a few years ago, which was all of these skills that I'd largely seen in the context of first academia and then within the context of journalism actually just applied throughout our lives. Because if we just stop and think, OK, last week, how many different interactions based on my communication? Let's leave social interactions and family interactions out of it, but just other interactions in our lives. How many did I have? It would probably be hundreds in an average week. Probably be hundreds if you work out every time you went into a meeting or every time you had a chat with someone of consequence, every time you went to the doctor or had a talk with your kid's school or you know, 101 other examples. And if every single time how you communicate is clear and efficient, that can be really transformative because in the end, if you can do that routinely from the smallest moments to the biggest moments, it means you save time. It means you're more likely people understand what you would like them to understand. They're more likely to understand what you want from them. Ideas that you've got are more likely to happen. Lots of things will will follow. And that that was the, really the reason I wanted to write the book was to say, look, there are some things that we can all be doing here which are going to be good for you for the reasons I've just detailed. But they're actually good for the people that you're communicating with because none of us like having to work hard to find out what someone wants to say. So there's no there's no downside to this. If we do it well, it's good for us and it's good for the people that we're speaking to. Well, thank you so much for explaining yourself so clearly. And I know exactly what I want to say. I want to say, do buy, do read The Art of Explanation, How to Communicate with Clarity and Confidence. It's by the wonderful Ross Atkins and it's published by Headline.
You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard, Monica Lillis, Chrissy O'Grady and Tom Webb. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.